Well, it's good to see you all this morning. It does look like a beautiful Memorial Day weekend, and I uh, hope you'll be able to uh, relax some and spend some time with friends and family today and tomorrow. Uh, you can open your Bible up to Exodus 13. That's where we'll be this morning. Exodus 13. It's not uncommon today. In fact, it's quite common uh, to hear people say things like, it's my life, not Bon Jovi necessarily, but you know, just in general, it's my life, it's my money, it's my body, I can do and will do whatever I want with it. Many, many people live by that sort of philosophy of life. And the, what undergirds that statement is this idea that it's, it's my life. I am in possession of these years that I get and this body that I get, and I am the sovereign over this, and I can use it however I please. I can do what I want with it. And there are thousands and thousands of articles and books in Barnes & Noble and on Amazon, books of pop psychology that offer advice to you on how to live your life the way you want to and, and how to get what you want out of life because ultimately it is your life. You only get one. You get one crack at this. That's it. And so maximize it. Get all that you can out of it. Make the most of it. Don't let someone else control you. You get what you need out of this life. And many people are so used to thinking that way, it's very common, it's very natural, it seems, in our culture for us to think that way, that they just assume that the pathway to a life of satisfaction and to fulfillment and happiness is lived trying to get what I want to out of it. And I don't want to hurt other people in the process, but at the same time, it is my life. And so I'm in control, I'm the sovereign over, over my life. Now, unfortunately... This is not just a let's point our finger out there at everyone else, right? We want to be careful about doing that because unfortunately this thinking is the cultural water that we as Christians swim in. And so we're bombarded with books and articles and advertisements and TV shows that, that are based on this philosophy. They're founded on this sort of life philosophy. And so oftentimes we as Christians will live this way and we don't even recognize that this has influenced us. It's so natural to us. And I want to remind you this morning that if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a Christian, if you claim him, that your life does not belong to you. It is not yours. It's not my life. It's not yours at all. There's so many passages of Scripture that address this. Romans 14, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You belong to him. Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention. This is Paul's exhortation to the elders from Ephesus as he's departing them for the last time. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained, right? It's his, and he obtained it with his own blood. Your life, my life, was bound for destruction. It was 
involved or under the dominion of sin in slavery, and God stepped in and purchased you out of that slavery and brought you into his service as his child. You are not your own. And he did not redeem you so that you can now take control of your life and live however your sinful passions and sinful desires call you to live. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself his people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Now, all of the the three passages that I just read to you, all of them have language in them that is taken directly from the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt. In this passage, this word redeem here is directly taken from Israel's exodus and redemption and ransom from slavery in Egypt. And so what has happened is God has bought Israel in this story, out of slavery. He has purchased them through a sacrifice and through judgment on Egypt, and now they are set apart for him. They're his people. And as they're departing from Egypt, you come to this passage here, which in many ways seems oddly placed, right? Like we're reading about them leaving Egypt, and they're packing up, and they're departing, and all these People are are moving out for the first time. They're leaving Egypt. And right in the middle here, we get this explanation of what they're supposed to do in the future as they remember these couple of rituals or practices that God gives them. And God's going to give them two specific practices here in order to rehearse their redemption from Egypt. And both of these practices are meant to build convictions into the people of Israel. And these convictions will remind them of their redeemed identity. You were this, now you are this, and it means that you belong to God. Therefore, you live differently, just as Titus 2 says about us as the church. These practices are meant to shape their behavior, their actions, their loves and affections, and they're meant to do these things in the future so that they can be reminded of what has happened to them in the past. And so they can know that they are not their own, that they are bought with a price. And so Exodus 13 verses 1 through 16 is where we're going to be this morning. And here's what we're going to see. Two convictions to rehearse that solidify your redeemed identity. These were true of Israel here, and they're equally true. The convictions are equally true for you and I today, and we'll make some of these connections. But two convictions to rehearse that solidify your redeemed identity. The first one of these is that God delivered you by his power for his purposes. Now, you'll notice on the screen, that's not a typo. The first conviction starts in verse 3 and goes to verse 10. We haven't even talked about verses 1 and 2 yet. There's a reason for that. The first two verses of chapter 13, if you'll notice in verse 1, are God speaking to Moses. 
Now look at verse 3, and you see God, or you see, I'm sorry, Moses speaking to the people, and that will carry on through the end of verse 16. And so what's happening here is these first two verses are, are forming a summary of the main message of this passage. It's the message that God wants these two practices to communicate to Israel. Let me read these verses. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Now, the word consecrate here, probably not a word that you use very often, but this means to set apart. When you consecrate something, you pull it away from the group and you set it apart for a specific purpose. This is the same word in Hebrew that is translated holy all over the Old Testament. God says here that every firstborn of animals and of human beings belongs to him. The end of verse 2 says they are his. It is mine. And we'll talk about the, the practice of setting apart and redeeming the firstborn when we get to verse 11, the second practice. But for now, it's enough to say that the firstborn was very important in this time and in this culture, particularly in Israel, although every ancient culture. And the firstborn was very important because he, the firstborn son, represented the entire family. Let me read you a, a quote here. Um, from one commentator and author on this that I think will help you to see why God targets the firstborn here, particularly the firstborn son. Firstborn sons were important in the ancient world as they are in many cultures today because they signified the center and future of the family. The eldest son had special responsibilities and privileges, including the right of inheritance. But God was not showing favoritism. The point of consecrating the firstborn was really to show that the whole family belonged to God. The firstborn represented all the offspring, including the girls as well as the rest of the boys. The firstborn stood for the family as a part representing the whole. The way, for example, that a captain represents his team at the beginning of a football game, or an executive represents his corporation at the bargaining table. And so God here summarizes this text by pointing to the firstborn and saying the firstborn is going to be set apart to him. And for Israel, this is a very vivid reminder that back in Exodus 4, God said that Israel was his firstborn son. And so what he's communicating through this is that the entire nation belongs to him. All the people as represented in the firstborns are his possession and they are his people chosen by him. And so in order to constantly remind the Israelites of that, this is something they needed to remember they needed to know they were God's chosen people and his possession and his children. And so in order to remind them of that, God gives them two practices that will take them back to that reality. Each of these practices, in the one in verses 3 through 10 and then the other one in verses 11 through 16, each of these practices is directly tied to one of these major convictions that God wants Israel to be formed and shaped by. 
And the first of these practices is in verses 3 through 10, and this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast was supposed to remind them every single year, it was practiced every year, of their deliverance from Egypt. That's the connection piece here. That God delivered them from slavery by his power. They were to think about the moment they walked out of Egypt. We talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread a couple of weeks ago. The point is, eating unleavened bread for a week was such a unique experience and so unusual in their lives that it would automatically remind them of God's deliverance of them from Egypt. And that's exactly how God begins talking about this. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. And so he's saying, remember this, and then look what he says at the end of verse 3. No leavened bread shall be eaten. If you didn't know any better, that seems like a non sequitur. What is happening here? Why are we talking about no leavened bread being eaten? And the point is, no leaven equals God bringing them out of Egypt. Verse 4, today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. Remember this time, this month, this day. So God brings them out of Egypt, and this feast of unleavened bread would remind them of their deliverance. But why? Why did God bring them out? And this takes us back to our first conviction. He brought them out by his power for his purposes, because now they belong to him, and he has goals and purposes for them. So what are those purposes? Well, I find two of them in this explanation of unleavened bread. First of all, God brought them out, amazingly enough, to do good to them, to bless them by bringing them into the promised land. And remember, the land didn't, the, the culmination of going into the land wasn't just enjoying the land, although that was a part of it. It was a beautiful, wonderful land. The culmination of that would come when God dwelt among his people and they were in fellowship with him and were worshiping him and representing him. Look at verses five through eight. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, reminding them of Eden. It was a, a re-entry in many ways, supposed to be into Eden, to dwell in God's presence and to enjoy his blessings. And God had delivered them by his mighty hand, by his power, for his purposes. And at least one of those purposes was to do them good and to bless them. The second purpose, as God was doing good to them, he wanted to make them holy and make them an obedient people who were committed to keeping his law. Look at verse, verses 9 and 10. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes 
Why? Why were they to remember this? That the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with the strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as at its appointed time from year to year. In other words, here's logically how this would work for Israel. They were to rehearse God's deliverance of them by his power so that they would remember his purpose and his purpose was to put his law in their mouth. In other words, it was to be so, the law was to be so important and so significant to them that it was in their mouth. They knew it, they remembered it, and they lived it out. They were an obedient and holy people. So let me pull all of this together here. The people of Israel were to remember their deliverance from Egypt by God's mighty hand so that they would know that he has specific purposes for them. And these purposes include not just delivering them from slavery, but delivering them in order to bless them in the land and to make them holy by becoming obedient to his law. Blessing and holiness. Those were his purposes. Now here's the thing for you and I. Let's, let's jump forward to us. Oftentimes we forget God's powerful deliverance on our behalf. And when that happens, we lose our identity as his loved and holy people. It's clear from this that God loved them. He was committed to their good, and he loved them in such a way that he wanted them to be holy so they could be in his presence. And so I think oftentimes we fail to walk in holiness and to pursue holiness because we have forgotten that our lives are defined by God's purposes. And we forget that because we've forgotten our redemption. We've forgotten what he has done for us. We've forgotten the magnitude of the the deliverance which we have received. And I want you to listen now in the New Testament to how Paul weaves together all of this language of redemption along with God's desire to do good to us and bless us and for us to be holy. All of these themes come together. I have to think in some ways Paul is remembering the Exodus when he writes even words like this in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See the language of blessing and wanting to do us good and bring us into a relationship with him. And at the same time, his purpose and his goal is to make us holy, to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, absolutely language pulled from Exodus, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. There's another place in the New Testament where Paul actually uses the feast of unleavened bread to help him make a point to the church at Corinth regarding holiness and that they should be holy because of their identity as God's people. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is addressing this sin issue that's going on in the church, 
And it's this sordid story that Paul says, even pagans wouldn't be okay with this, but you guys are acting like it's totally fine. And he, he uses the Passover story and the Feast of Unleavened Bread to help the, the church at Corinth to see that they can't continue to act in this way because of their identity as a redeemed people. 1 Corinthians 5. Your boasting is not good. Did you, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For they're a new identity. Why? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The point is here that we have been delivered by our Passover lamb, and now we are a new lump, right? We are free from slavery to sin, from evil, and so now we must act like we have been set free. We must act like we are fellowshipping around sincerity and truth and not malice and evil. And so, a couple of questions for you. Does your life today show that you have been delivered by God, that you have a new identity, that you've been delivered by his power and for his purposes? Or do you claim Christ as your Passover lamb and yet still live like you are in Egypt, in your thoughts, in your affections, in your actions, and your way of life? And that brings us to our second conviction to rehearse. These are convictions. These are things that we, we want to believe in the deepest part of who we are, and we want to rehearse them so that they begin to shape us and to form us into our redeemed identity. The second one of these is that God redeemed you by a sacrifice, and now, because of that sacrifice, you are His. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we just talked about, was to be celebrated every year. So there was a rhythm and a pattern to this. You knew what month you celebrated it in. You knew when it was coming up. And the Israelites were to remember the moment that they departed from Egypt, to remember God's power in delivering them. And when they remembered that, it would cause them to celebrate God's blessing by by bringing them into the land, his love and affection for them and doing them good. And it would also remind them to become a holy people because of their redemption from, from Egypt. But now, in verses 11 to 16, God gives Israel a second practice that they're supposed to participate in. This is supposed to happen once they go into the promised land. This one is not something that happens on a rhythm like a yearly or monthly basis. This happens any time a firstborn opens a womb and enters the world. And this practice is meant to direct their attention, not just to their deliverance, but to the cost of their redemption. They belong to God because a price was paid for them as a substitute on their behalf. And they have to keep this sacrificial price in mind as they continue to live in the land. Verses 11 and 12, look there. 
When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. So this sort of takes us back to verses 1 and 2, where we saw that God wants them to consecrate or to set apart every animal and every human being that is born. This would look quite a bit different, the setting apart, the action that you take to set apart an animal versus the action you take to set apart a human being. Now, it's not specifically mentioned here. This is a little confusing, I think, to read this without uh, an understanding of the full picture here, uh, but it's not mentioned here what actually would have happened, so let me, let me kind of try to clarify this to you um, in, in some ways. If an animal was born who was a clean animal, right, so you could eat that animal, a sheep, a goat, a cow, then you were to immediately, the firstborn that opened a womb of a clean animal immediately was killed and offered as a sacrifice to God because it was his. Now, if an animal, a work animal, was born, like, say, a donkey, you'll see in verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. So if you had a firstborn work animal that came into your possession, then you could redeem that animal by offering a clean animal as a substitute for that animal because it belonged to the Lord. But if you did not want to offer a clean animal as a substitute, then it was the Lord's and you were not allowed to take possession of that animal. And so what did you have to do? Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. It was God's, and so you could not take possession of it because it belonged to him. And this would very graphically illustrate that to the Israelites. And so no matter what animal opened the womb, you had to recognize that it belonged to God and it was his and there was a price that was paid in order for you to take possession of that animal. But things are very different here for human beings, although they too are the Lord's. Look at verse, the rest of verse 13. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Of course, Israel was not going to kill and sacrifice the firstborn son to the Lord. That was a pagan practice, and Israel was not going to participate in that, or at least they should not have, although they got into it much later in the land, which is one of the horrible things that caused them to go into exile. But the point here is the firstborn sons had to be redeemed as well. So what did they do? Well, later on in the Pentateuch, some amount of money is clarified to be given for the price of a firstborn son. And so a son had to be ransomed or redeemed as well. And Israel had to continue this practice in the land. No matter when a son was born, he had to be, a price had to be paid to redeem him from the Lord. Look at verses 14 to 16. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, 
I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Both of these practices end in the same way, by God saying, I want this to, to be close to you on your forehead and in your eyes so that you are on your hand so that you remember this. Now, I told you before that the firstborn was indicative of the future of the family. He received the inheritance. He represented the whole family. And so what this practice would have reminded the Israelites of is it would have reminded them of the sacrifice that was given, that was paid, so that they could be rescued from judgment and delivered to be God's people. I mean, that's why in verse 15, God draws this back to the death of the firstborn in Egypt. Because the firstborn of Israel were literally sacrificed or, or were literally a price was paid for them to, be, to remain alive and to be redeemed. Now over and over again in this passage, the word redeem is used. And I know it's a familiar word to you. There are churches called redemption, right? It's a word that is very common to us as Christians. But I want to make sure this morning that you and I are very clear on what this word means. Redemption. To be redeemed. To be redeemed, or another way you could say this, is to be ransomed, is to be set free after the payment of a price on your behalf. That's what this means. And the story of Exodus defines for, for Israel and for us that God is a God who redeems those who are in bondage. He's a God who sets them free, but he does this by a price being paid on their behalf. Listen to how Moses put this in Deuteronomy 7. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The redemption, the freedom that they experienced was not without a cost. There was a sacrifice that happened so that they could be bought out of slavery. Later in Isaiah 49, the prophets understand God as the redeemer of Israel. This is said several times. Thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one. I won't read the, the rest of that. So it's in keeping with this Old Testament presentation of God as a redeeming God. This is his character. Remember, the point of the book of Exodus is to reveal God's character to us. And so here we learn that God is a God who ransoms and redeems those who are in bondage. And it's in keeping with this picture that when you get to the New Testament, that God sends his one and only Son to accomplish a mighty work of redemption for his people. This is exactly how the Lord Jesus Christ understands the heart of his ministry. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a redemption, as a ransom on behalf of many. Now, what does this mean? 
What are we looking at here when Jesus says that my life is a ransom for many people? There are two major aspects to redemption. You see these in the book of Exodus, but I want to make them clear in the New Testament as well. There's one negative in the sense of, it's not a bad thing, in the sense of erasing something. And there's one positive in the sense of you gaining something when you are ransomed. To be redeemed in the New Testament means that your sins are forgiven. They are tied closely together. In other words, you are not, you are not held in bondage anymore to those sins. They don't have control over you. They are erased. You and I are not in bondage like Israel was to Egypt. But we have received a horrific bondage that we are born into from the sin of Adam, where our natures are corrupted and we are fully deserving of God's wrath. That is the enslavement that you and I are born into. But to be redeemed is to have a price paid that secures our freedom from that bondage. And so what that means is that you are released from your sins. Your sins are forgiven. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Through the Lamb receiving the punishment for our iniquity, we are redeemed and thus forgiven. Colossians 1, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. How does this transfer happen in whom we have redemption? This is an Exodus word. And he equates redemption here with the forgiveness of sins. Here's the definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the release on the part of the creditor or offended party of any expectation, any expectation that a debt will be repaid or that an offender will receive punishment for an offense. So, when you have been redeemed, ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ, your sins have been forgiven, they have been erased, and there is no expectation that you will ever be held to account for those sins. Ever. They're gone. This is the negative side of this. Your sins are forgiven. They are erased when you are redeemed. But not only have you been granted freedom from your sins, but it is a freedom to something that is truly shocking and amazing. You're released and now you enter into a new family. You gain access to something you never had before. Redemption, when God brought it to Israel here, and then as we have received it from the Lord Jesus Christ, means that we are now adopted into his family. We go from slavery to sonship. Galatians 4. Whoops. 
I didn't put Galatians 4 up there. I'll have to fix that for the second service. But Galatians 4, let me find this and read it to you because it's that helpful. Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that, here's why we were redeemed, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Adopted heirs. You have an inheritance, as Ephesians describes it. We are united now to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we receive all the glorious benefits that the son receives. And it's no wonder then, with sins forgiven, with the the negative taken away, being released from accountability for those sins, and then with a family inheritance given to us, it's no wonder with both of those things happening for the redeemed that in Revelation we find around the throne of God a group of people who are singing to God and to the Lamb because of their redemption. Revelation 5, when he had taken the scroll, speaking of the lamb, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed, redeemed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They are forgiven for their sins by his blood, and now they have access to God and shall reign with him. It's Notice the connection here, obviously, between Jesus being called the Lamb, clearly pulled from the Passover story, and and the, the ransom that is paid there in verse 9. He is the lamb who pays the ransom by his blood. Now, bringing all of this back full circle, this redemption, what does this mean for you and I today? 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. A a sacrifice was made for you and for me. So glorify God in your body. To glorify God this week requires you and requires me to rehearse our redemption, to remember these things, to go back and to understand and to think about the power that was displayed on our behalf so that we could enter into God's purposes And to think about the price that was paid, the sacrifice that ransomed us, that redeemed us, and then brought us into God's family. So now we are not our own. It's exactly what Paul is saying here. You are bought with a price. And so remember that. Rehearse your redemption. Remember the sacrifice that was made for you and let that compel you to go out and to live in a way that honors him because of all that he's done. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for 
your word. We're thankful for the redemption that we have. Words can't even express what has been done on our behalf, Lord. But we thank you for these stories, these passages that, that teach us, that instruct us, and we, we need from you illumination, Lord. We need, Holy Spirit, for you to open the eyes of our hearts and to help us to see the glory and the wonder and the magnificence of what you have done on our behalf. And we pray that you would would help us to make this connection to the fact that we don't own ourselves, that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and so we live differently. We walk out into our day today and tomorrow understanding that we belong to you because of your power, because of a price that was paid. We thank you for our time together this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.